Uh, keep your Bibles open if you have them to John 13 and Philippians 2. And as you came in, in the news sheet, there's a talk outline. If that helps you to follow along, please feel free to use that. When people are new to Australia, I say to them that if you don't like the weather in Melbourne, just wait five minutes. The weather will change. And if you don't like the Prime Minister in Australia, just wait five minutes and there'll be a new one. Since 2007, Australia has had seven changes of Prime Minister. And I'm, I'm just glad that these changes have happened without machine guns and tanks. But each time there's been a change in leadership, we get this window into, into leadership. Now, often we're disappointed by what we see. Uh, we see ambition and arrogance. We see self-interest. Sadly, many of us are familiar with that type of leadership, and not just in politics. Sadly, we've seen leadership that uses others, not serving others in, in our places of work, in our places of study, in our families, even in our churches. And sadly, we've seen that type of leadership in our own lives. And in contrast, you meet Jesus. He is the embodiment of the leader that you want. Everything you could imagine that is good and decent and upright and honest. And not only that, in Jesus is the leader that you need. We're going to see that in the passage before us. But you see, this leader also expects things from us. And we're going to unpack two things that Jesus expects from us. You must be served by Jesus, and you must serve like Jesus. Well, firstly, you must be served by Jesus. Uh, all along the Gospel of John, we've been seeing that the hour has not yet come. There's been this building anticipation in John's Gospel that the hour is getting nearer and nearer. And in chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The hour of the Son of Man is the life-giving death of Jesus Christ. And just like a seed, Jesus dies in order that others may live. And we see in chapter 13, verse 1, the hour has finally come. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what happens next is very puzzling for the disciples. Now, Jesus and the disciples are eating together as they would have done many times before. And then suddenly Jesus rises from his seat. He takes off his outer cloak he wraps a towel around his waist. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, surely not. No, he couldn't be, could he? And he does. He picks up a wash basin. He gets a towel. And he stoops down. And he washes each of their feet one at a time. And that is shocking to them. Why? Why is it shocking to them? Well, you've got to imagine in Jesus' day, walking in sandals on dusty roads, roads littered with waste and animal excrement. Imagine the smell of the sweat 
shocking, isn't it? But that's not why they're shocked. You see, when you invited people to a meal, it was basic hospitality to wash the feet of your guests when they were reclined eating their meals. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus reminded Simon the Pharisee that he had not done this. He had failed basic hospitality for his guests. In contrast, the woman who came into that meal and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and perfume was commended by Jesus. You see, it wasn't the foot washing that would have shocked the disciples. It was who was doing it. A lowly act of foot washing was reserved for a lowly servant of the house. Now think of having the Prime Minister over to your house for a meal. Then after that meal, the Prime Minister rises up and says, now I'm going to wash your toilets and clean your showers. That's a little bit shocking to us, isn't it? Even though we'd probably appreciate that. It was unthinkable for the disciples that a person of status would ever stoop so low as to wash someone's feet let alone the status of one that they called Christ, their Lord. Now, at the very least, what Jesus is doing in the foot washing is a stunning act of humility as a leader, but it is much more than that. John is pointing us to the death of Jesus. There is more at play here. In verses 1 and 2, Judas has been prompted by Satan to betray Jesus. Jesus is preparing to leave the world and return to his father. And now he's, he's showing them love to the end. And what is that love? Yes, there's love in the foot washing, but there is even more love. In John 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And so this selfless act of foot washing... Jesus is pointing his disciples to the greatest demonstration of selfless love, and that is the cross. And it is by looking at the foot washing through the lens of the cross that we will understand what's going on. Well, how do the disciples react? Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand no, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, the gospel accounts tell us that the disciples often argued with each other over who amongst them was the greatest. And in their hierarchy, you had Jesus, God's anointed king, the Christ, he was at the top. And then there were positions of, of greatness at his left and his right. And then the rest you'd have to fight over. It sounds like the politics of any country, doesn't it? In fact, Peter once refused to accept Jesus' declaration that the Christ, that Jesus, would suffer and die. It seemed completely offensive to Peter that someone with power and authority like Jesus would ever do such a thing as die and suffer at the hands of his enemies. And so Peter is now faced with a king who is stooping down to wash his feet. Peter will not accept it. But remember, Jesus is not talking about foot washing. He's talking about his death. 
something Peter will understand later. Jesus is saying that Peter must be served by Jesus through his death on the cross. Jesus is saying, Peter, as I wash your feet, so I must die for you. You must allow me to serve you in this way. My death for your sin is the only way you can be washed clean. Unless you are served by me, you will have no future with me or with my Father God. I, I like Peter in the Gospels because he reminds me of me. And here he takes one foot out of his mouth and he puts another foot right back in. Verse 9, Then, Lord, Simon Peter said, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. What is Jesus saying to Peter? Well, I think Jesus, again, is pointing to the nature of his sacrifice on the cross. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that what Jesus did on the cross is a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, for all sin, for all people, for all time. So much so that the regular rituals of going to the temple, of offering sacrifices for sin, were done away with. And if we were likening it to washing, it would be like this. Jesus died in our place for our sin on the cross. So God made it possible for Jesus, for us sinners, to be washed clean by Jesus. So when someone calls out to Jesus and asks for forgiveness for the first time, and when they are served by Jesus' death, it is as though they've had a bath. Their body is clean. He or she is acceptable to God. But we recognize that we still sin. And when we sin, when we confess our sin to God, we know too that we will be forgiven for that sin. Or using the words of Jesus, once you've had a bath, you only need to wash your feet. Now you see, some get this wrong about Jesus. Jesus is not being sacrificed over and over again. For example, when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, that is a meal of remembrance. We remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. It is not the case as something that Jesus is dying over and over again each time we celebrate the supper. The cross is this decisive once-for-all act. There's no need to keep washing yourself through penance. You don't become a Christian over and over again. Once washed clean, you confess your sins, knowing with confidence that Jesus has done enough for you to make you right with God. So friends, let me ask you a question. Have you been served by Jesus? The cross of Christ is not an optional extra in the Christian life. It is the very demonstration of the love of Christ, the means by which we are washed clean and made fit for God. See, what Jesus does on the cross is so unique that none of us can make ourselves right with God without the cross. And so this suffering servant king who humbles himself to death on a cross issues both a warning and an invitation. And that invitation is, let me serve you. Let me serve you by dying for you. And here's the warning. Unless I serve you in this way, you have no part with me. 
You cannot be a Christian without the cross. You cannot say you follow Jesus until he has served you. And I think herein lies one of the great challenges of being a Christian. You see, it seems kind of easy, doesn't it, to be a Christian? All you need to do is to be served by Jesus. But to do that requires humility. It requires an honest admission that you cannot do it on your own. That without the mercy of God, you are helpless and hopeless and filthy because of your sin. Desperately needy of a saviour who washes you clean. And I think like Peter, all of us find that difficult to accept. When I was in my third year at uni, I was leading a Bible study of first year students. Bernadette was one of these students. Bernadette had been faithfully raised to go to Catholic Mass all her life, every week. And we reached this part of Romans in our Bible study. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And when Bernadette saw these verses, she said, you mean all I have to do to be forgiven and made right with God is to have faith in Jesus? And I said, yes, I was so excited. Bernadette could not swallow that. She found it so hard to accept. What about penance? What about going to the priest for confession? What about doing your rosaries? What about going to mass? And I'll never forget this. She said, you don't ride a bus for free without paying the fare. So how can you get to God without paying something? And I said, that's the point, isn't it? You can't pay it. You cannot pay the price that God requires. So great is your sin that no amount of penance will wash that away. No amount of good works will cause God to overlook that. No amount of being nice. You cannot pay, but Jesus paid it all. His death pays for our sin. Can you see the significance of the cross? That the Christ, God's very own son, would need to die in order to serve you. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Let me ask you again, have you been served by Jesus? Through his life-giving death and resurrection. If not, cry out to God. Gracious Father, please forgive my sin through the death of your son, Jesus. And let me just say, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, it's easy to forget just how much we need to be served by Jesus. And you know what? It's easy for us to forget how much others need to be served by Jesus. You see, think of someone that you find difficult to love. Think of someone you're angry with. Think of someone that you're in conflict with, someone you're disappointed with, someone that perhaps you were very dearly close to. Now, when was the last time you thought of this person as a sinner 
desperately in need to be served by Jesus? When did you pray for them? That Jesus would melt their hearts so that they would see their need to be served by Jesus. You see, I think most of the time we expect more from people than they can deliver because they're sinners. Just like you and just like me. And what they need more than anything else is to be served by Jesus. You must get that first point in order to get the second point. You have been served by Jesus. You must be served by Jesus in order to serve like Jesus. You must serve like Jesus. The humility that Jesus demonstrates in the foot washing is to be an example to all who will follow him. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Now, is it the case that we should be washing each other's feet in church? Now, I don't believe that's the case. There's only one other reference in the New Testament to foot washing outside of the Gospels, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. Widows are being addressed here. They're being commended to wash the feet of others. But in, in that list, in that passage, that is only one of, of a number of good deeds that these widows could do, including helping others in trouble, including showing hospitality. And I think what Paul is doing is he's emphasizing the attitude of humble devotion, of service and doing good for others. And again, if we understand the foot washing to be pointing to the cross, the cross is the ultimate example of sacrificial service that Jesus' followers are to imitate. So I think Jesus is not limiting the disciples to foot washing. He is commanding them to have the attitude to serve like he serves. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, in the world's thinking, greatness is all about selfish ambition, self-promotion, rising in status and power that others might serve you. And Jesus turns all of this on its head. Here is Jesus, the Son of Man, prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, given all authority by God to rule over all the nations, the only one who has the right to be worshipped and served as Lord. And now the Son of Man, Jesus says, himself assumes the status of a servant and serves by giving his life on the cross as a ransom, a payment for our sin. And what Jesus is saying, that all who bear the title follower of Christ, well, they too must do the same. They must serve like their king. As we look at the foot washing, as we look at the cross, we too must serve as we have been served by Christ. Now, some years ago, a well-meaning friend who'd left our church uh, came to visit me and told me very sincerely that I too should leave Bundy, that I should go and lead my own church, 
that in fact I was being held back by staying as an assistant pastor at this church. In fact, this person went on so far as to say that I was Peter Costello to Neil's John Howard. And for those of you unfamiliar with Australian politics, John Howard was one of our longest serving prime ministers. And in the later part of his term, there was this tension between John Howard and his treasurer. There was much media speculation about their leadership. And in the end, John Howard contested that final election and he lost. And the rest is history. Peter Costello never served as prime minister because according to some, John Howard couldn't give up his hold on power. Well, imagine if the church worked like a political party, where selfish ambition was just drive, was just good leadership. Well, power is just a means to an end, and and after all, you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette. Imagine if that's how the leadership of our church worked. I mean, there's four pastors here now. It's quite complicated, all right? Which leadership faction will rule the church? Maybe it's just a matter of crunching crunching the numbers in the the back rooms, working out which elders and pastors are, are behind me to make a run for the top job before I get pushed out. And sadly, some of you have been in churches like this. Why have I been here for more than 20 years? Why? Why have I been a pastor here for 12? Here's one reason. Let me tell you another story. Uh, For those of you who know our senior pastor, Neil, it's not uncommon to find him sweeping the floors, jumping in rubbish bins to make more room. And one day I found out why. After the service one day, one of our Iranian brothers, before this brother became a Christian, he saw Neil sweeping the floors. And in a, in a mixture of curiosity and shock, he stopped Neil and he said, in my country, religious leaders would never do such a thing. Why are you doing this? And I just happened to be walking past, and I'll never forget Neil's response that day. If Jesus saw fit to die on the cross for me, then sweeping the floor is the least I can do for him. If Jesus saw fit to die on the cross for me, then sweeping the floor is the least I can do for him. It's been a privilege for me to serve alongside and under my senior pastor because of his senior pastor because of his cross. And, what, and that, what Neil said has shaped my leadership ever since. What Neil said about his own service, I think, is no different to what the Apostle Paul says applies to all of us. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And you know what Paul goes on to say is the mindset of Christ Jesus? It's the cross. 
The cross where Jesus had equality with God and he empties himself of that, takes on the nature of a servant and humbles himself to death on a cross for us. You see what Paul's saying in these verses? Look at the cross. Look at the cross and you will find encouragement from being united with Christ. Look at the cross and you will find comfort from his love. Look at the cross and you will see that Jesus pours out his spirit on his people. Look at the cross until you are no longer hardened by self-interest. But you're full of tenderness and compassion. And we as a church, we are to look at the cross until we have the same mindset, the same love, the same spirit. We are to look at the cross until what drives us is nothing else but the humble love of Jesus for the other. Jesus has set me an example that I should follow. And if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Let me ask you, do you serve like Jesus? As Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, as he died on the cross in humble, other-centered love, do you serve others like that? Do you consider the needs of others ahead of your own? Or are you always caught up with your own life, always making plans that further your agenda without a second thought for others? Or maybe you serve, but you just do enough to fulfill your obligation. There's no warmth. I do because I must. And still others of you, as you listen to me, are feeling guilt right now. You know what you should do, but you're struggling to do it. And here's another preacher layering another layer of guilt on me. Here's what I think. If you struggle to serve others like Jesus, it's because you haven't understood the depths of what he did for you. Just what it meant for Jesus to serve you. Just how terrible your sin is. Unless you know the riches of what he did for you on the cross, it is very hard to do the second part, and that is to serve like Jesus. You need both, don't you? You need to be served by Jesus in order to serve like Jesus. If you know what he has done for you, you cannot help but serve like he does. Let me give you some homework, okay? I want you to complete this sentence this week. If Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then is the least I can do for him. And in that blank space, I want you to put one thing that you find hard to do for someone else. For the young people here, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then clearing the dishwasher is the least I can do for him. For those of you in share houses, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then I want to be generous with the bills and not stingy and calculating because that is the least I can do for him. For those of you in difficult marriages, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then forgiving my husband, forgiving my wife is the least I can do for him. For those of you who long to get married, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, 
then rejoicing with my friend's engagement, even though it hurts so much, is the least I can do for him. But Andy, you don't know how hard it is. You don't know how lonely it is, how much it hurts. I want to be served. Who notices me? You don't know how it feels. I don't. I don't know how it feels for you. But he does. When I feel weary because of my sin, stricken with grief, unappreciated, unrecognized, lonely, I think of Jesus as he stoops down to wash Judas's feet when he knows he's going to betray him. I think of Jesus as he stoops down to wash Peter's feet, knowing that Peter's going to deny him. I think of Jesus as he washes all of the disciples' feet, knowing full well that they will abandon him when he needs them most. And then I think of Jesus as he walks that lonely path on the cross. And my terrible sin that I've committed against him. Jesus knows your grief, your loneliness. He knows your confusion. He knows how hard it is for you. So ask him for help. Friends, you have been served by Jesus. And you must serve like Jesus.